Well, take your Bibles, please, and turn with me to the book of James. And we are today looking at chapter 1, verses 5 through 8. How many of you need wisdom sometimes? You need wisdom from God. Amen. We all do. All the time. That's right. Very good answer. Every day we need the Lord to tell us what we need to be doing and what we don't need to be doing. We need wisdom. And today we're going to talk about the pathway to godly wisdom. The pathway to godly wisdom. Look there in James chapter 1 beginning at verse 5. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. This is the word of the Lord. How do you know what to do and when to do it? How do you know as a Christian what to do? I've talked with people for years, and they make decisions. And they say, now, preacher, this is not a, this is not a Bible decision. This is just something between me and my family. I got news for you. Everything you do is a decision that you need to talk to the Lord about. Everything. I've talked to people and they said, well, I'm just going to find a, a good house somewhere. You know what? You need to be praying about that because it's not just you. Your whole family's going to live there and there's going to be neighbors there and you need to be in the right place so that you'll be able to interact with the right neighbors and so that the right neighbors will have the right influence on your family. Even where you live is important. You need to pray about it. I've talked to people about their jobs, and they think the only issue is if I make more money, it must be the will of God. Look at me. There are a lot of places you can make more money, but it may not be the right place for you. It might be a trap. You say, well, how do I know? You've got to ask God. You've got to talk to God. You've got to seek God. Well, how do you do that? Well, let's talk about it. How can you get godly wisdom? And aren't you glad that God knows the beginning all the way to the end? God knows tomorrow as much as he knows today, as much as he knows all about yesterday. God is already out. There is a verse of Scripture in Deuteronomy that says, God says, I will be with you and I will go ahead of you. At the same time, God is with you. God is ahead of you because God is not only omniscient, but he is omnipresent. He's everywhere. Look at me. If you're walking with the Lord, you'll never put your feet 
anywhere where God has not already walked before you. So God knows it all. So we need his wisdom. He is smarter than you or me or anybody else on this planet. He is smarter. You don't rely on common sense. And you know, the older I get, you don't even rely on experience because God might be wanting to do something totally new than what he did last time. It will never be against his character or against his word. It won't be contradictory to the Bible, but God might have a new way to go that you don't even know anything about. Your experience sometimes can be your nemesis because God might want to do something new. You need to follow the Lord. The Lord knows the way and he will make a way if you'll follow him. So let's talk about it. First of all, let's look at our poverty of godly wisdom. We are not as wise as we think we are. How many of you remember when you knew everything? Does anybody remember that? Yeah. Then the older you got, life taught you a few lessons, didn't it? You found out you don't maybe know everything there is to know. So how do we overcome this poverty of godly wisdom? Notice what he says in verse 5, but if any of you lacks wisdom, basically he's saying, <laughs> that's a real sweet, kind way of a pastor saying, guess what? You lack wisdom. <laughs> you don't have it all together. If any of you lacks wisdom, he's connecting this word lack. That's the, the, the key word there. It's connecting to what he had just said in verses three and four. If you go back to verses three and four, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its perfect result, his maturing result, so that you may be perfect, that is matured and complete, lacking in nothing. And then right out of that, in the next verse he says, but if any of you lacks wisdom, here's what you do on that. You lack in nothing in maturity, but you can lack in wisdom. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about that. That word lack is a banking term. It means to be out of cash. I remember one time I was buying some tires at uh, a guy's place. I said, is 90 days same as cash? He said, Preacher ain't nothing same as cash. Sometimes you lack finances. Well, sometimes you lack wisdom. You have a shortage at the bank. The word wisdom is the Greek word sophia. It's where you get the word sophisticated. Sophisticated means to be enlightened, to be knowledgeable, to be cultured. For Jews in James' day, Wisdom was a coveted attribute. I mean, it's something everybody wanted. The Old Testament magnified wisdom highly. In fact, there's a whole section in the Old Testament that theologians refer to as wisdom literature. The Psalms, the Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. And one of those books is really considered the treasure house of wisdom in the Bible. It's called Proverbs. 47 of the verses in Proverbs speak about the wisdom of God. One talks about the fact that God created the world by his wisdom. Proverbs 3.19, the Lord by wisdom founded the earth. King Solomon, a very wise man, 
at least in the beginning of his life, said in Proverbs 4, 7, getting wisdom is the wisest thing anyone can do. Now, what is the key verse? I've told you this several times before in Proverbs. It's Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10. You all know it. It says, the fear or the reverence of the Lord is the beginning of what? Say it out loud. Wisdom. And then Proverbs so magnifies wisdom, it even personifies it and gives it a voice in chapter 8. Wisdom talks and says, I, wisdom, this is Proverbs 8, verse 12, I, wisdom, dwell with prudence and I find knowledge and discretion. If you will stick around wisdom, you'll have prudence and you'll have knowledge and you'll have discretion. It is precious. It is something that we all need. Thus, when James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, he's saying sooner or later, every one of us is going to be in need of godly wisdom. Now, let's just define wisdom. I said it earlier. What is wisdom? It is knowledge applied in a practical, appropriate way. Knowledge applied. Say that with me. Knowledge applied. Look, you can have knowledge and not have wisdom. You can't have wisdom without knowledge. But you can have knowledge, that's just facts, without knowing how to apply them appropriately. Wisdom is when you apply those knowledgeable facts appropriately. I'll give you an example. My wedding anniversary is June the 14th. That's knowledge. Wisdom is I'd better do something special for Donna on June the 14th. Now, she doesn't care, but I know that it's a special time, and I'm going to do that. That's the better part of wisdom. How about this? If I eat whatever I want, Whenever I want, I'm going to gain weight. You say, oh, no, Brother Steve, I have conditions. I know everybody has conditions, but a lot of people just overeat, all right? And I'll be frank with you, that's just knowledge. What's wisdom? I'm going to eat correctly. I'm going to eat a certain amount of calories, and I'm going to exercise and do my best to be accountable so I can lose some weight. And by the way, I saw an article the other day that if you eat the same amount of food today that you did 20 years ago, there's so much junk in our food now, preservatives and all that, you can eat the same calories you did 20 years ago and gain weight today when you didn't gain weight back then because there's so much junk in our food, so many things that cause us to retain weight. So yes, it is a little bit harder nowadays to not gain weight, but we still ought to take care of our physical bodies. That's wisdom. Knowledge is knowing the facts. Yeah, I ought to do it, but wisdom is doing what you have to do, and I can go on and on. How about this one? God speaks to people through Scripture. That's knowledge. I'm going to read my Bible, though. That's wisdom so that God will speak to me. I could go on. You get it. It is applied, appropriately applied knowledge. That's what wisdom is is. Now, we live in a day, how many of you know there's a lot of knowledge out there? Amen. Everybody's got knowledge. In fact, I was looking at a study the other day. In 2000, 
only two million people in America had some kind of doctorate degree. In 2018, almost 20 years later, 4.5 million had a doctorate degree. There's a lot of reasons for that, but the bottom line is we think we're getting wiser when all we are doing is getting more intelligent. But I want to say this to you. I have met people who are very intelligent, but they're not very wise. Okay? And as far as Gump, the great theologian, would say, that's all I'm going to say about that. But it's not synonymous. Being knowledgeable, America has a lot of knowledge. You can go to the internet and you can't even take in all the knowledge that is available to anyone who can access the internet. But are we wiser? Does America, do Americans love Jesus more than ever? I don't think so. Do we read our Bibles more than ever? Studies show that we don't. Do we pray more than ever? Studies show that we don't. Do we give to other people in need? Do we treat people kindly? I want to tell you, one of the most mean places in all the planet is social media. People can be cruel and they have a platform now. Do we value the lives of unborn babies? We've got knowledge, but do we have the kind of wisdom that we need? Do we value biblical marriage, one man, one woman for life? Do you and do I appropriately apply the knowledge that we have? Without godly, biblical, spiritual wisdom, it really doesn't matter how much knowledge and how many degrees you can accumulate. You can read all the books you want to, but that doesn't make you wise. It just makes you knowledgeable. It's not until you appropriately, and appropriate according to Scripture, it's not until you apply that truth and that knowledge biblically, only then are you wise. That's the poverty that we have of godly wisdom. Now notice something else. Not only our poverty of godly wisdom, but notice God's provision of godly wisdom. He wants to give it to us. Look at verse 5. The latter part says, let him ask of God. If anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all, notice, generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. What's James' solution for our lack of wisdom? Let him ask of God. Prayer. There it is. Why do we put so much emphasis on prayer? Because of things like this. We need wisdom, and this is God's answer. If you don't pray, you're going to be stuck with worldly knowledge, and it always leads to a dead end eventually. But if you will understand there is a better way, <laughs> and that is God's wisdom, you'll start praying. And the word for prayer here, here is I taito, and it is a verb, it is active 
and it is imperative. That means it is an ongoing command. Here's how it can be translated. Let him ask and keep on asking. I've had some things I've prayed for for 30 and 40 years. You know what? I'll pray for it until the day I die or until the day it happens. I'm praying for a few people that need to be saved, and I've prayed for them for years, and they haven't been saved yet. I'm not going to quit. I'm not going to quit. I'm going to keep on asking. That's what the Bible says. Now, the Jews in James' day felt like that wisdom was all wrapped up in the decisions of the rabbis. And so James, being a good Jewish guy, but now a Christian, was saying, look, it's okay to talk to the rabbis, but they are not the know-everything-about-wisdom place. The real place is God. Go beyond the rabbis and go to God directly. Why? Verse 5 says, He gives to all, all who will ask, generously and without reproach. Now, when he says generously and without reproach, Reproach, he is again showing his Jewish background because the Jews love to speak in parallelism. They love to say things in a contrasting yet similar way. You say, how can it be contrasting and similar? It can be positive and negative and say the same thing. Notice he says a positive thing. God gives generously. Aren't you thankful that God is a generous God? He is a generous God. That's why we need to be generous. I want to tell you something. Anybody that's constantly holding on to things and not giving things, that's where you mess up. God didn't make your hands to be clenched all the time. He made your hands to be open. You don't own anything. You just are a little caretaker, all right? And so if he gives you something, he didn't really just give it to you. He gave it to you probably to give some of it, if not all of it, to somebody else. You need to think about that. That's the way God works. And so God here is saying, I want to give to you generously. That's the positive and the negative way of saying, and without reproach. He doesn't fuss at you when you ask him to give him something. I mean, when my little kids were saying, dad, could you get me some cereal? I didn't say, get your own cereal. Quit asking me. You ask me that all the time. I didn't say that. I said, what do you want? Fruit Loops or Cheerios? Let's get something healthy. Amen? Now, if I, being evil, know how to give good gifts to my children, how much more will our Heavenly Father who loves us give what is good to those who belong to Him? So, if God is a generous giver who gives without reproach, and I can ask him for something, I'm going to do it. And he just flat out says it. And it will be given to him. Now, do you remember I've told you that the best commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, is the book of James? Here, James is almost quoting his brother Jesus word for word. Matthew 7, verses 7 through 8, ask, Jesus said, and it will be given to you. Seek and keep on seeking. That's what it is. Present imperative. Keep on seeking and you will find. Knock, keep on knocking. It will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives and he who seeks finds. To him who knocks it will be open. 
Oh, if you lack wisdom, the first place you go is the throne of God. Throne of God. Don't go horizontal. What do you think I should do? What do you think I should do? They don't know. You don't know. Go to God. God knows. Other than Jesus, according to Scripture, the wisest person ever to live was Solomon. Where did he get his wisdom? He prayed for it. Let me just read it to you very quickly out of 2 Chronicles 1, 7 through 12. In that night, God appeared to Solomon and said to him, ask what I shall give you. Kind of gave him a blank check. Ask what I shall give you. Solomon said to God, now this is prayer. You've dealt with my father David with great loving kindness. You've made me king in his place. Now, O Lord, God, your promise to my father David is fulfilled, for you have made me king over a people as numerous as the dust of the earth. Give me now what? Say it out loud. Wisdom. You asked for it. Give me now wisdom and knowledge that I may go out and come in before this people, for who can rule this great people of yours? God said to Solomon, because you have had this in mind and did not ask for riches, wealth, honor, or the life of those who hate you, nor have you even asked for a long life, but you have asked for yourself wisdom and knowledge that you may rule or lead my people over whom I have made you king. Here it is, Solomon. Wisdom and knowledge have been granted to you. Why? Because he asked for it. Because he took the time to ask for it. And I will give you riches and wealth and honor. I'll give you what you didn't ask for, such as none of the kings who were before you has possessed, nor those who will come after you. Have you ever heard of the phrase, a Solomonic decision? That means a wise decision. Now, sadly, this still happens. This great man of God became sinful and immoral, and he turned away from the Lord. And guess what happened? When he did, his wisdom left him. It was a gift from God that God took back because he turned his back on God. And in the words of George Bailey, to Mr. Potter in my favorite movie, It's a Wonderful Life. Solomon died like Mr. Potter, a warped, frustrated old man. If you want to read about Solomon, go read, first of all, the beginning of his life when he wrote Song of Solomon, a love letter to his wife. Oh, what a man he was. And then he, in the middle of his life, when he was at the peak of his wisdom, he wrote the book of Proverbs. But then after he sinned, he wrote that last book, Ecclesiastes, which is a book of frustration with a man who no longer fears the Lord. He needed wisdom. He asked God. God gave it to, you, to him. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. God knows everything. God knows it all. He's wiser than anyone. It is wise 
to talk with God and to believe in God. It is foolish not to believe in God. Twice in the Bible, in Psalm 14, verse 1, and in Psalm 53, verse 1, the Bible says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. God is a good God. God is a God who will give to his children, and he will especially give wisdom. Again, Jesus' words in Matthew 7, 7, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. In these perilous days, I plead with you, pray more than you've ever prayed, and pray for divine wisdom. Ask God to tell you what to do. Don't depend on your experience. Don't depend just on your family's advice. Don't go there first. First and foremost and most often go to God and keep asking, keep on knocking, keep on seeking, and ask God to show you what to do. That is God's provision of godly wisdom. Hallelujah. Well, what's the pathway to godly wisdom? Well, we gotta recognize our poverty of godly wisdom. We don't have the wisdom that we need. And then we must appropriate God's provision for godly wisdom. We've got to ask of God because he's generous. He'll give to us without reproach. He won't rebuke you if you go to him on the smallest thing. I've asked God for Big things, I've asked God for little bitty things. And you know what, he's never reproached me. It doesn't matter. If it matters to you, it matters to God, all right? It doesn't matter what you're thinking of. Whatever matters to you matters to him. But notice finally the prerequisite for godly wisdom. And I'll be frank with you. This is a very important part of the book of James. Look at verses six, seven, and eight. But James starts more sentences with the word but, a contrasting conjunction. And he's saying this, but, wait a minute now, let me have one more thing. Yes, he must pray, he must ask, but he must ask in what? Say it out loud. without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man, the doubter, ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord. And here's the bombshell. Being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. There's a qualification. There's a prerequisite for getting answers to prayer. It's not just asking, but you have to ask believing that God is going to tell you what to do. He's going to, he's going to talk to you. You've got to ask in faith without any doubting. And here he goes again saying the same thing once positively, and then secondly, negatively. See the same thing. But he must ask in faith. That's positive. You've got to ask in faith. Again, what is faith? I said this earlier. Faith is trusting God's character 
and relying on God's promises, trusting the character of God and the promises of God. And without relying on God's promises, without trusting his character, James' readers, their prayers would not be answered. They had to pray and ask in faith. He says, without any doubting. Ask in faith without any doubting. To doubt is to have a divided mind. And you can't have a divided mind and pray single-minded. You have to be single-minded, focused primarily on the kingdom of God and the king. When you pray, you've got to seek first the king, Jesus, and the kingdom. You've got to set your eyes on things above. Why? Verse 6 goes on to say, For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea. He is driven. He is tossed by the wind. We've all, at least most of us have seen the ocean. We've seen the currents. We've seen that the surface of the ocean is constantly changing. It is the picture of instability, the picture of things that are changing. And that volatility in the waves is a precise picture of one who doubts Scripture nails it here. He is driven and tossed like the waves, driven and tossed by the wind. And you can note that in people when they are constantly indecisive, constantly unpredictable. They're as unpredictable and indecisive as the churning surf of the sea. And prayers from people like that don't get answered. They just don't. For that man, verse 7, ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord. And then he lowers the boom. I spent a lot of time in soul searching with this word. Being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. What does it mean to be a double-minded man? Write this somewhere in your notes. A two-souled man. A man with two souls. By that, one part of your soul wants to walk with the Lord, and yet one part of your soul wants to get over here in the world. And guess what? All of us are tempted to have two souls. All of us are tempted to be double-minded. The devil is constantly pulling at us. The world is constantly pulling at us. Our sinful nature is constantly pulling at us, trying to get us off into sin. Look, you can go somewhere and hide in a mountain hut. And guess what? 
sin will still come after you. You know why? Because it's in you. The reason, the reason vacation in and of itself is not a getaway is because you carry yourself on vacation. The problem is not out there. The problem's in here. So everywhere you go, you're tempted to worry. You're tempted to doubt. You're tempted to sin. It is corruption within. Yes, you got saved, but you still have that sinful nature in there. Oh, praise God, one day we'll be free of it when we die and see Jesus, amen? But right now we have a war going on, and if you say anything less, I know who's won the war. <laughs> the devil has deceived you and won that war. Yeah, you still have that going on, double-minded man. One minute you're thinking and all worried about the things of the world. The next thing you're seeking first, the kingdom of God. Then you go back to the world, then you go back to God, then you come to church, then you go home, and before you get home, you're all frustrated about something that you think about, that you let in your mind just tear you up, and we've all been there, done that, so have I. It makes us unstable in all of our ways, divided loyalties. We waver, filled with doubts, inconsistent. And when you get this way, you don't finish projects. You start things and you never finish them. You're double-minded. We've all been there. Paul experienced it. There were times when Paul was double-minded. Paul didn't, he wasn't perfect. In my opinion, he blew it when it came to John Mark. Barnabas did right that day, and I believe Paul did wrong when he turned John Mark away. Peter blew it when he wouldn't eat with the Gentiles when some of the people from Jerusalem showed up, and Galatians talks about it. There's not a perfect person in the Bible except for Jesus. All of us at times are not single-minded on Jesus. We're not seeking first the kingdom of God. Sometimes we're all tempted to be double-minded. That's just kind of our goat. That's your default is to be double-minded. You have to seek first the kingdom of God. It has to be something you go after. You have to be proactive to be single-minded. If you go to default, you'll be double-minded and unstable, not just in spiritual things, but in everything. Your spiritual side affects your whole life. Well, this is a strong warning. Strong, strong warning. You say, well, there's no hope. I can't walk in faith all the time, so my prayers won't be answered, so I guess I just give up. Wrong. That's what the devil wants. If you can just get a little bit of faith, God can do a whole lot with a little bit of faith. 
You remember when Jesus was on the mountain, transfigured, they saw his glory. Moses shows up, Elijah shows up. They're worshiping the Lord, glory of God on the mountaintop. And they came down into the bottom of the mountain. How many of you ever been on a mountaintop and when you leave it, something tough happens? Anybody out there? They come down to a demon-possessed boy. And the disciples that were not up on the mountain, while they were having revival, they were down here trying to fight a demon and they couldn't get that demon to come out of that boy. And Jesus shows up. You can read about it. In Mark chapter 9, verses 17 and following, one of the crowd answered him, Teacher, talking to Jesus, I brought you my son possessed with a spirit which makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it slams him to the ground and he foams at the mouth and he grinds his teeth and he stiffens out. Now, don't you go out there, by the way, and say, well, the boy just had, le le you know, uh, what is it? Epilepsy. Yeah. Don't say that. Because the Bible says he had a demon. All right? He may have had epileptic characteristics, but it was because he had a demon. How does a boy get a demon? I don't know. I think personally it has to do with parents or forebears, sins of the fathers that give the enemy a platform to go. I want to tell you something. This is, I didn't even plan to say this, but I'm going to say it. You'd better understand that whatever you do in your home has an effect on your children and everybody else in your family. You can open a door that can, when your kids are totally innocent of it, those demons that you can let in through things that you look at or whatever else or you're involved in and they can affect your children. You are the doorkeeper, parents, to your house and to your home. So, how he got it, I don't know, but he had it. I told your disciples to cast out. They could not do it. And Jesus answered them, oh, unbelieving generation. Now he's fussing at his disciples. Unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him here to me. They brought the boy to him when he saw him. That is when the demon saw him. Immediately the spirit threw him into a convulsion, falling to the ground. That, that demon knew who Jesus was, didn't he? Falling to the ground, he began rolling around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? He said, from childhood. It has thrown him both into the fire, into the water to destroy him. What does the Bible say about the devil? He has come to steal, kill, and what? Destroy. That's why I know this is real. But if you can, but if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus says, if you can, all things are possible to him who believes. And then verse 24 gives me some hope. Immediately the boy's father cried out and said, I do believe, help my unbelief. Lord, I'm holding on by a thread. I have just a little bitty seed of faith here. I don't have much. I do believe. I'm trying, Lord. How many of you ever been there done that? Lord, I'm trying. I'm trying to do the right thing, but I'm telling you, all I can muster up right now in my soul is a little bitty seed. Oh, God, I do believe. Help me, Lord. I want to tell you something. The best prayer you will ever pray is help. 
<laughs> Help me, Lord. Help me do right. Help me think right. Help me, Lord. I don't know which way to go. I'm out of options. Help me, Lord. I'm telling you, when God hears a cry from his children to help, if one of my kids called me right now, I would leave you in a heartbeat. I'd leave this church right now and go to them. If they needed help, I'd go to my children. And if I, being evil, am like that, how much more is our God who loves us as his children? He will go to us if we'll cry to him for help. I do believe. Help my unbelief. Let's all say it together. I do believe. Help my unbelief. Say it again. I do believe. Help my unbelief. Man, I've been there, done that, haven't you? Just have a little bit of faith. That's all I got today, Lord. That's it. A little bit of faith here. But it's not the size of your faith. It's the object of your faith. And the object of your faith is a lot bigger than the size of your faith because the object of your faith is Jesus. And when you go to God, even with a little seed of faith, God will bless you. God will bless you. Let me give you a few ways to avoid being double-minded. I forgot to tell you the West Tennessee definition of double-minded. Wishy-washy. Can I get an amen? How many of you know what I'm talking about? Every, how many of you ever been wishy-washy? I have. He said, I don't understand that. I don't know what to tell you. So what builds our faith? Let me give you four things, not in your notes, but they need to be. You need to write this down. Faith is a spiritual muscle. Okay, talked about that last week. Faith is a spiritual muscle, and we're gonna build it up, all right? We're gonna start slow, but here's four exercises, if you will. Number one, you've got to prioritize God's kingdom over worldliness. You gotta say, Lord, your kingdom is more important than this world. Worldliness. Matthew 6, Jesus' famous words. Read it with me from the screen, would you please? Read it with me now, good and strong. But seek first his kingdom, his righteousness. All these things will be added to you. Paul says the same thing basically in Colossians 3, 2. Say it with me. Read it good and strong. Very short verse. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. That doesn't mean you don't pay your bills. It doesn't mean you don't go to work. But it does mean that the, the, the vast majority of your thoughts are not so much on these things, but they're on spiritual things. And they can be. So you got to prioritize God's kingdom over worldliness. Number two, you got to live in the scriptures and pray God's promises. I don't know of anything that will build your faith more than the word of God. Live in the scriptures, pray God's promises. You can do it all day long. And once, one of the reasons I really encourage you to memorize scripture. I've got some young men that are preachers uh, that are on our staff. Uh, Noah's one of them, and we meet once a week. We're memorizing the book 
of James. And I would encourage you to do that if you've never done that. You say, I can't do that. Yes, you can. How do I do that? One verse at a time. That's all you do. Just try to do two or three verses a week, and you can do it, all right? But the Word, getting in there, just, it just kind of cleans you out. It just, it just kind of makes you spiritually knowledgeable and all that. Why? Living in the Scriptures, praying God's promises. Romans 10, 17 says, faith comes from hearing. Hearing what? Hearing by the Word of Christ. The more I hear the Word of God, the more my faith is built up. It's a muscle that is built up. Thirdly, I can build my spiritual faith muscle up by agreeing with others in prayer. I do this a lot. I call people that I know they are well attuned at the throne of grace. I have some people that I know know how to pray, and I call with them, and I agree with them. I am, the word agree in Matthew, let me just read the verse to you, Matthew 18, 19. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree, see that word? It is the word symphonos. Obviously, we get the word symphony from it. It's us being together, playing harmoniously. We're asking harmoniously to God in a symphony of prayer we're asking him together to do something, all right? And there's more power than that, in that than there is when we do it on our own. If you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, talking about prayer, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna get with some people and we're just gonna cry out. It's like a magnifying glass that takes all of that energy and points it on a laser beam and we're gonna talk to God about things, and we're going to have more faith because I'm getting other people involved in it. And then the last thing is offer. This is huge. This is huge. Oh, this is big. Offer. You can build your faith by offering a sacrifice of thanksgiving to God. You just need to go around thanking God for things. Just, you know, you, it just, you just start, you know, when, when you start feeling a little bit like, you know what, I'm not feeling very strong in the Lord right now. Here's what I'm going to do. Lord Jesus, thank you for this day. This is the day you have made. I will rejoice and be glad. That's how I start my prayers every morning. God, this is the day. Thank you, Lord, for the 20th of February, 2021. I receive this Sunday as a gift from your hand. I said that early this morning. And Lord, I just praise you. This is the day you have made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. Lord, thank you for my health. Thank you, Lord, for my wife. Thank you for our children. Thank you, Lord, for a home. Thank you for food to eat. Thank you for clothes to wear. Thank you for a roof over my head. Thank you, dear God, for all these blessings, dear God. But, oh, Lord, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he died on the cross for my sins. Thank you that he lived a perfect life. Thank you that he cares for me. Thank you that he's listening to me right now. And thank you that he's interceding for me right now. And thank you that he's coming back. Oh, Jesus, thank you that you rose from the grave. Thank you, God, that my name is in the Lamb's book of life. God, I sacrifice to you a sacrifice of praise. I offer it to you. Where do you get that, by the way? Out of the Bible, Psalm 50, verses 14 and 15. Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and pay your vows to the Most High. And then he starts talking to you. Call upon me in the day of trouble. Just call upon me in the day of trouble. What will I do? I shall rescue you, and then what will you do? You will honor me.
but I want you to give me thanksgiving. Even when you don't feel like it, you say, well, that's not real prayer. Oh, that is the most real prayer you'll ever pray is when you do something when you don't feel like doing it. Don't wait for a feeling. Just obey. And guess what? The feeling will follow the obedience. Don't feel your way into obedience. Obey your way into the right feeling. And even if, it does, if the feeling doesn't come, it doesn't matter. I'm not out for feelings. I am to walk in faith. And I can't do that if I don't offer sacrifices of thanksgiving to God. I do believe. Help my unbelief. Would you receive wisdom from God today? Say, I want it, Brother Steve. Okay, here it is. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Can we keep going? Yeah. But he must ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. How many of you want to be a single-minded Christian? Amen? I don't want to be a double-minded Christian. Do you? I want to be a single. I want to seek first the kingdom of God. All right? 